Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney and this is our 150th episode. So many thanks to everyone who's written in over the, what are we now, two and a half years or so that we've been doing this to wish us luck. Um, in fact, we've just got a message coming right in now uh, from Conor McGregor, uh, which says simply, uh, break a leg. <laughs> Too soon. Uh, Too soon. Well, yeah, yeah, that's a little unfortunate. Yeah, look, seriously, wish Conor McGregor all the best for his recovery from that very nasty injury he sustained on Saturday night. Uh, combat sports are very dangerous, and it is a sign of how tough fighters are that they do a job in which breaking a chin is part and parcel of the risk. But that said, if you talk that big, you do need to start backing it up. McGregor has now uh, just won one of his last four bouts. And look, there was talk a while back, and I think we might have talked about it as well, about the possibility of his facing Manny Pacquiao in a boxing ring, because that's a thing now. That's what like old boxers do. They face UFC fighters, and UFC fighters face boxers, and whatever. But I have no idea how realistic any of that ever was. But Conor McGregor... I don't know. I might want to take that opportunity sooner rather than later if it exists, because Connor, this rate is only a matter of time before Jake Paul turns down the offer to fight him because he says that Connor McGregor is nothing but a circus act. <laughs> okay, c- careful with the uh, the Paul brothers jokes. They pay part of our salary these days. <laughs> they, 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 <laughs> um, they do. God bless them. <laughs> I've always liked them. Yes, absolutely. We are full full supporters of all things Paul brothers. Um, this uh, result from the UFC on Saturday would appear to be a, a pretty serious blow against the chances of that Pacquiao-McGregor fight ever happening. Um, now they're saying at, at least six to nine months to recover from the injury uh, anyway, so it's not it's not happening before then. Um, McGregor's stock is way down at the moment. You'd think he'd want an MMA win to rebuild his reputation a little before uh, he would do a, a, a fight like a Pacquiao, and, and of course Manny isn't getting any younger, uh, but all that said, if we've learned anything in the past year, it's that there's no number too high in terms of age. Uh, no no circus sideshow exhibition type fight is ever entirely unviable if the fighters are big enough stars. So uh, Pacquiao versus McGregor in 2030 when Manny's in his 50s? Book it. It's happening. Oh, I wish I could say I knew you were kidding. But <laughs> it's entirely possible. All right. Uh... This week on the podcast, we will dive into the postponement of a major fight, uh, an actual fight, due to one boxer's training camp, apparently acting as a little bit of a COVID super spreader. Uh, We'll look back at an easy KO win for Zodo Ramirez and a tougher decision win for Jojo Diaz. And I'll reveal the topic for Eric's next top five list. But the primary subject this week is Saturday's Showtime Championship Boxing Card, headlined by the 154-pound All the Marbles undisputed title bout between Jermel Charlo and Brian Castaño. Uh, shortly, we will be joined by Charlo's trainer, one of our favorite recurring podcast guests, Derek James, and he'll give his insights on the challenge Jamel faces. And he'll also talk a bit about his other star fighter, Errol Spence, facing the aforementioned Manny Pacquiao. But first, our analysis of this triple header from the AT&T Center in San Antonio, Texas. Just four weeks after his twin brother Jamal prevailed over lightly regarded Juan Macias Montiel in the Charlos hometown of Houston, Jamal steps up to face a much tougher challenge on paper some 200 miles from home. Kieran described this as being for all the marbles, and while I can't keep track of every off-brand version of every alphabet belt, the fact is that belts from each of the four most recognizable sanctioning bodies will be on the line here. Uh, But more importantly to me, the transnational boxing rankings rate Charlo at number one and Castaño at number two, so the vacant championship will be at stake. Plus, Charlo has the Ring Magazine title and is defending that. So whether you follow the sanctioning bodies or ignore them, whether you prefer a one-world, one-champion system or you don't, this is it. This is for the 154-pound title. And after Saturday, it will belong to either Charlo, who is 31 years old and sports a record of 34-1 and with 18 knockouts, his only loss, a close decision to Tony Harrison, which he avenged, or Argentina's Castaño, also age 31, with a record of 17-0-1, 12 KOs, his lone blemish, a split draw against Arislandi Lara. I'm planning to ask Derek James a, a version of this question as well, but I'll ask you, Kieran. Charlo has faced some excellent competition in his pro career. Where does Castaño rank for you among his toughest tests? 
Well, look, he has to be, at the very least, right up there. Uh, look, you look at Jamel's opposition, and it's good. Um, and the toughest guys on paper are probably the guys that he's fought most recently. Tony Harrison, Erickson Lubin, Austin Trout, Jason Rosario. Um, Lubin today is perhaps stronger than the Lubin who fought Charlo, in part because he knew he had to rebuild himself after losing to Charlo. Mm. Um, Trout at the time was a guy who almost everyone struggled with. Um, nobody beat him convincingly. Uh, Harrison's just this tough style matchup and just a dangerous and skilled opponent for anybody. Rosario, very strong. Uh, again, very difficult opponent. Uh, although I think Jamel, after what we saw from him the other week, I think Jamel probably broke him a little bit in that fight. Um, and honestly, you look at all those guys, and Castani would be at the worst a tough out for any of them. Um, and part of the reason for that is that he is a 154-pounder who in some ways fights a little more like a 130-pounder. It mm. isn't super common when you move up the weight divisions to find someone who fights like Castaño, who's just that relentless energy, that incredible engine, someone who just gets right on you, driving forward and driving forward and suffocating and pressing you. I, I mean, poor Patrick Teixeira, who's by no means a shabby boxer himself, looks a little bit like a gazelle trying to get away from a pack of hyenas by the end of their contest. So Castaño, I think, yeah, is not only one of the best opponents he's faced, but may, he might even be the best so far. But he also presents some genuinely unique challenges. Um, and that actually sort of makes me want to ask you a question there, really, to break down that style a little bit for us. Um, and indeed, Jamel's style. At last week's virtual press conference, Castaño talked about what he'll do, about the pressure that he's going to apply. And Charlo spoke very respectfully of the challenge that Castaño presents, but said that he's going to break him down. How do you see him trying to do that? How do you expect him countering to counter Castaño's pressure? How do you expect these styles to mesh? I like what you said there about Castaño being like a lightweight fighting in the 154-pound division or 130-pounder, maybe you said. Well, that, mm. that That's an accurate description. I hadn't really thought of him that way. Um, here, here's the full quote from Castaño uh, from that press conference. It, it's a really good quote. I'll just read the whole thing and let him provide some of the analysis for me here. Uh, he said... Charlo is a great fighter, there's no doubt about it, but I came here to do my job, and I'm going to come forward. I'm the type of fighter that is always going after you. I'm always there to pressure you. I've seen Charlo knock down a lot of fighters with just one punch. That's something to look out for. However, I have more of a variety in my arsenal than anybody he has fought before. If I have to be more aggressive and go for more power instead of finesse, rest assured that I can knock him down as well. Um, so the, the two key things he hit on there... He applies a ton of pressure, and he has some variety. It's not all one mm. gear. He's a smart right. fighter. Castanio is short for a 154-pounder. He likes to get in close, work inside, throw combinations, go to the body and head. And from what I've seen, he's aggressive without getting defensively irresponsible. He's an outstanding right. fighter, uh, as his draw with Lara indicates. Uh, you can't be a uh, a less than uh, championship level fighter and fight Arislandi Lara to a draw. He might be favored over anybody in the division right now other than Charlo. Um, but of course, Charlo is the favorite. He's that good, that talented, that heavy-handed. Uh, don't let the modest KO percentage fool you. He is as capable as anyone in boxing of turning out the lights with one punch. And Castaño talked about that danger. One thing about Charlo, he will wing wide punches sometimes. So if he and Castaño are exchanging, yeah, Charlo is the guy more likely to do damage with a big shot. But Castaño might be the one landing more punches, landing quick, sharp shots inside of Charlo's punches. I think this fight comes down to a few questions. Um, first, will Castaño, who's only been knocked down once in his career, take Charlo's punch okay? That's a huge question. Second, will Charlo be busy enough not to get outworked and lose rounds if he isn't hurting Castaño? You know, with, without eye-catching punches, he could fall behind. We saw him dig a big hole against John Jackson several years ago before scoring the knockout. And of course, he lost, controversially, on points to Tony Harrison. He, he can be outpointed. Um, and third, who will go to the body more effectively? They're both capable body punchers. Which one is more diligent about it? 
uh, without getting caught with a counter over top, of course, could determine who wins. Um, I said this about the the Rivera-Fernandez fight two weeks ago. Uh, I'm saying it about this one, too. Hard to see this being a boring fight. Um, I expect the styles to mesh very well from a fan's perspective. Um, And by the way, just as a quick aside, um, it's really annoying searching for Jamel Charlo on YouTube. I don't know if you experienced this uh, in your research (laughs) for this podcast. More than half the videos that come up are for Jamal. And I yep. assume vice versa as well. I guess the search <laughs> function assumes it's a typo either way or thinks they're the same guy. Fix that, YouTube. Uh, you know, it's not 2016 anymore. These aren't just prospects. These are elite boxers. It's time you recognize which Charlo is which. <laughs> uh, okay, there are two undercard bouts on the broadcast. Let's take a look at each. First, there's been a late change to the 12-round co-feature. Lightweight prospect Raleigh Romero, 13-0, and 11 KOs, was supposed to meet Southpaw Austin Dulay. But Dulay is out with a knee injury, so in steps a different southpaw. Sweden's Anthony, can you dig it, jig it? Uh, 24-1-1, 8 KOs, who was preparing to appear on the off-TV undercard, but moves up into this much higher-profile slot. We've seen a couple of different versions of Romero. He's looked dynamic and blue-chip at times, but he also struggled to a decision over Jackson Mourinho's about a year ago that neither of us thought he deserved. So, Kieran, what are you hoping to see from Raleigh here? And as a southpaw with an Olympic pedigree, how stiff a test does Jiggit present as a late sub? Mm, the problem with Jiggit, from what I've seen, you look at his record, and outside of the broken husk of what used to be Chop Chop Corley, the only recognizable name on his resume is Ivan Baranchik, who stopped him um, in 2018. Since then, he's fought three times, none of them against anyone of consequence, but hasn't fought at all for two years. And granted, he's hardly unique in that sense, given the pandemic situation. But watching that fight with Baranchik, I I thought it really showed some limitations. He's a he's a straight ahead, straight up boxer. He's a little squared up. Um, He has his hands up, but he leaves plenty of room between them for the opponent to find a target, which Baranchik did. He marked up his left eye early and just turned it into a complete mess by the end of the fight. He does like to stalk forward. He can land punches of his own but doesn't seem to have a great deal of torque uh, behind those punches. Um, Looking at the way he fights and the way Raleigh Romero fights, without giving away my prediction just yet, I could see a couple of ways this fight could go. And I think the direction depends more on Romero than on Jiggit. Um, Mm. Romero can be a fun fighter to watch, like you said, or he can be a frustrating one. Um, And that's, I think that's quite, can quite often be the case with guys, especially younger guys who fight a little unconventionally like Romero, who, at times sort of almost has a touch of the poor man's Nassim Hamed about him. You know, mm. he doesn't always work conventionally behind a jab, but he'll use these kind of quasi uh, sort of uh, uppercut slash power punch jabs to set up his other power punches. Keeps his hands a little low. He fire punches some odd angles. Either Romero could get a little bit too relaxed in there and give Jigget the opening to keep coming forward and keep throwing and just keep scoring, basically, even if he's not punching hugely effectively. Um, or I could also see him, if he's on his game, sort of allowing Jigget to walk on to power counters and really just eating him up in there because I think we're going to see Jigget come forward. And I think a lot depends on how Romero tries to deal with him. And I'm hoping... That we see, you know, that Jackson Marinez fight was very disappointing. And even a couple of others that he's won have looked a little disappointing. A lot depends on how engaged he is and how seriously he takes his opponent. I'm hoping that he's engaged and he takes his opponent seriously because it could be the kind of style matchup that makes him look really good and makes him look really sharp. Hmm. But with Romero, you can never be entirely sure. And it could end up being quite sloppy. Yeah. Um, The opening bout is a 10-rounder at middleweight as Amilcar Vidal Jr. of Uruguay puts his perfect record of 12-0 with 11 KOs on the line against battle-tested Emmanuel Alim, who is 18-2-2 with 11 KOs. Uh, We saw Vidal once on Showbox in 2019, albeit briefly, as he stopped Zach Prieto in the first round. Um, Many of his opponents have glossy records, but they've all been unknowns. But that is definitely not the case for Alim's opponents. Uh, they include Matt Korobov, Ronald Ellis, Yevgen Kitrov, and Hugo Centeno Jr. Um, Alim has had some spotty results, but he's now changed trainers to Ronnie Shields. And he says during the pandemic, he, quote, reassessed and reshaped his career. Eric, even if he isn't a new and improved Alim, even if he's the same Alim we've seen before, does he present the stiffest tests of Vidal's career to this point? 
short answer, yes. Uh, Vidal has faced, as you said, some guys with glossy records, but no real tests yet. In his last six fights, he's faced four undefeated opponents, uh, three 9-0s and an 11-0-2, and he beat them in one 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 and two rounds um Mm. if if he takes care of aleem that easily that will be a statement but i'm unconvinced for now about vidal he obviously has power although in his last fight edward ortiz took a lot of clean punches from him Mm -hmm. and stayed up and was pissed that the fight was stopped um but still vidal is a puncher he's flat-footed Nobody that I've seen has forced him out of his comfort zone. Right. Aleem, look, he's not a great fighter. He's a good, solid fighter. He fought Korobov to a controversial draw. He lost close to Ronald Ellis. He's just so much more ready to challenge Vidal, I think, than anyone Vidal has faced yet. Um, Interestingly, Vidal's big power punch is the right hand. The one time that Aleem got knocked out, it was on a left hook. So... Maybe this uh, won't play exactly to Vidal's strengths, or I'm curious to see if Vidal will try the left hook. Um, This is a fight with a lot of intrigue for me. Even though there's a clear intended A-side and a clear intended opponent, um, I I really like this this matchup and this test. So yeah, to go back to your question, Alim is Vidal's toughest test on paper either way. And if he has, in fact, retooled under Ronnie Shields and gone up a half step then it's more than just a tough test. He has a real shot at the upset, in my view. All right. Well, that's the card from our perspective so far. We'll deal with our predictions shortly. But first, let's talk with the man who will be in one of the corners during the main event. He is the trainer of Jamel Charlo and indeed of Errol Spence, who will be facing Manny Pacquiao on August 21st, legal objections permitting. And we will be sure to talk to him about that matchup too. Uh, He's been on the podcast a couple of times before, and each time he's been a really engaging and informative guest, and we're delighted to welcome him back now. Derek James, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, Happy to be here. Appreciate you guys. Thank you. Um, So uh, Jamel has faced a very strong level of opposition the last few years. I was looking down the list, Lubin, Trout, Harrison twice, Rosario, now Castaño, not to mention I had forgotten he beat Gabe Rosado back in 2014, a win that looks even more impressive these days. Um, I'm wondering where you feel Castaño fits among those tough opponents. Is there a case to be made that he could be the best Jermel has fought yet? I think that, I think he could, we 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 haven't seen him like face anybody. He faced well. He did fight um, Laura, right? And I think that he, he, but he's very technical. He's very skilled, and he's very determined. So I could say that. I could say that he might be the best mm. that Jamel is. Yeah. Okay. Mm. So he's he, so he's in that conversation based on what you've seen with the likes of. No, I think I think he I think he might be the best. I mean, if you think uh-huh. about um, if you think about. His tenacity, his worth at the his work rate in the ring. I think he might be the best. Okay. Mm. You mentioned his his work rate, and that's the thing I think that a lot of people really focus on with Castaño. He throws a lot of punches. Um, he averaged nearly a hundred per round in a recent fight. Uh, Jamel can be quite active, but he, you know, he he tends to be you know more selective in his punching. How? Big of a danger is it that he could be outworked just by Castaño's effort in this fight? I think that I mean it's a, it's a, I mean anytime you face somebody who throws a lot of punches, it, it's a very it's a dangerous situation, right? Because you can be outworked, but at the same time, the only way you can defend punches is you have to have your hands up. You can't defend many punches when you're throwing punches, so. I think that at the same time, the more punches you throw, the more vulnerable it makes you, depending mm-hmm. upon where you are when you throw the shot. So I think that, you know, I didn't, I didn't, I'm not banking on that, but I'm just saying that throwing a lot of punches is a great deal. But at the same time, if the guy is able to, to be intelligent enough to see through that and work through that, mm-hmm. it, it, it exposes you a little bit also. Mm. Right. So you got to be—he's got to be looking to like punch between Castaño's punches, right? He's not going to get an opportunity necessarily to wait for him to stop. He's got to pick those punches, pick his spots. Well, I mean, I think that you just have to be able to be intelligent, just like Castaño is going to be intelligent. So I think it's really a meeting of the minds in the ring. I think that 
with with the work rate and with the, with the power. But see, you got to think about this. He still, regardless how many punches he generally throws, he's fighting somebody who has knockout power. Mm. I mean, so you have to really think about that. So I think that maybe, I don't know if your work rate slows down, but I mean, if it doesn't, there's just more opportunity for Jamel to be able to land some shots. Gotcha. So, so one thing I just learned this week about Castaño is that he beat Errol Spence in the amateurs. Uh, you, you weren't working with Errol at the time, were you? No, I don't. I don't even remember when it happened. So I mean, I, I obviously wasn't with him. I was, I was with Errol from the first time he won any national championships. So I don't know if I don't know when that fight happened. I mean, so you know what I mean I don't know where it wasn't when he was like uh, at uh, like a he had like these different like they have juniors and seniors. Or it wasn't when he was a senior open or whatever. Is what I would say, so that I know of, because I, I don't remember him losing, you know, only to like a, a Russian and a couple guys like that. But who knows? Right? Yeah. I mean, if whatever it was, it was it was kind of a while ago, and you know, sometimes an amateur win means a lot. Sometimes it's so long ago it doesn't. And obviously, it's not Errol that's fighting Castaño. It's a uh, it's it's Jermel. But I guess just knowing but, that he has an amateur win over over Errol, does that say something to you about? The, does that make the make Castaño that much more of a formidable opponent? Just to know that simple fact that he has an amateur win over Errol Spence. No, because uh, I I can't go off of that. I mean, mm-hmm. I go off of the fact that you know, like I said, I watch his videos. I watch him. I study him as a fighter, mm-hmm. and he's very exciting. And he so that's what I mean. You have to respect fighters anyway mm-hmm. as an individual of the sport, but he has, he's a very skilled fighter. He has, obviously has a very good trainer and a teacher, obviously, because they're, they're teaching some pretty good stuff. So it's like, um, I mean, Hey, we're going to go in there and do our thing. And I know he's going to do his thing. We just have to be prepared for everything he does. Right. So those of us in the media and Eric and I are no exception here sometimes like to latch on to easy narratives right and to simplify things and sometimes oversimplify things and early on we looked at the brothers KO percentages and said oh okay Jamal is the puncher Jamel is the boxer but you dig a little deeper you know Jamel scored I think like eight knockdowns in his last few fights are we and against quality opposition are we kind of underselling and underrating the power that Jamel brings to his fights? I think that you're just looking at it for what it is or what you all remember him to be. Mm. So I think that we all have to come to the to the, to the new Derrick James era. Uh, y'all great in the morning <laughs> before, you know. So, <laughs> no, but I think that uh, and he's, a, he's, a, he, he's always had it in him. You know what mm. I mean? I think that you just have to so much about confidence, so much about believing in yourself, so much about technique, mm. and that's really what it is. I mean, I think that, and he, he's a big. I think both of those guys are big punches. Mm. I just think that uh, you know, um, Jamal has been able to get his guys out of there, and Jamal is also he's had like like several knockouts. I think that he didn't get the last two guys out, but I mean, he he knocks them out all the time, also. So I think both of the guys are big punches. Right. So uh, I've interviewed enough uh, fighters over the over the years to know that usually if I ask them a question, looking past the fight that's right in front of them, they don't want to answer it. They don't look like to look past that guy that, that they're about to fight. But sometimes trainers are willing to look ahead a bit. So I'm curious if Jermel beats Castaño, what's the big fight ideally on the horizon for him? I don't know what trainers told you that, man. But I, I'm, I'm gonna... Hey, hey, those guys, hey, man, they, they have some special optimism. I'm just saying <laughs> is that I'm focused on Brian Castagna 1,000%. Okay. I can't see past I can't see over him. I mean, I'm looking right at him because he is the guy who's right in front of us. I mean, I think to look past the guy, to be very callous and to be very uh, really unappreciative of the sport. I mean, I mean mm-hmm. you have to be in the moment at all times. I mean, so you can't even talk about anybody else. I don't even know anybody else in the weight. <laughs> All right. So I'll, I'll throw one name at you just as a hypothetical, not for, you know, let, we're not looking past Castaño, obviously. But I'm just curious because 
this fighter has really rebuilt himself since Jermel knocked him out. That's Erickson Lubin. Uh, whether it's soon or not, or a little down the road, do you think that a rematch of that fight makes any sense? Or once you've knocked out a guy in one round, there's real, even if he rebuilds himself, there isn't necessarily much point to a rematch. I won't, I won't, I won't speak to the point about a rematch. I'll speak to the point about if a guy has to, he, he, he rebuilds himself. He's got Kevin Cunningham in his corner mm-hmm. and he's doing his thing. If, that, if that's a possibility, you know, because uh, we're speaking hypothetically, so from yeah. a hypothetical perspective, if that's a possibility, then that's what it is. But I think that, you know, hey, man, he's worked for it. So he's earned, he earned the first, the first one and he earned the second one. This, mm-hmm. obviously, if he gets the second opportunity, he, he's obviously earned that as well. So I think that, you have to just, hey man, that's what it is. So let's turn your our attention to your other marquee fighter, uh, Errol Spence. Um, so he's fighting Manny Pacquiao next month, barring any legal issues preventing it. Um, Eric and I were kind of caught off guard by Manny agreeing to this fight. Were you at all surprised that at age 42, Manny agreed to face Errol? No, I think the many, 40-year-old Manny Pacquiao is just as dynamic as a, a 35-year-old Manny Pacquiao. I mean, okay. I've seen him fight. I've seen, uh, I've watched him fight Keith Thurman. I watched the fight over and over. I think that he's like a really rare breed, like a Bernard Hopkins or like a George Foreman or like a, uh, mm. or like a, uh, uh, Floyd Mayweather. Mm-hmm. And, and even the Crisco brothers, one of them. It's like they could, they could perform at 40-something. Mm. And so you can't, you can't never... I, when he knows who he is, it's hard to convince him that he's not that one thing in particular. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he knows who he is. He's up for the challenges. And I think that that's the key element. I mean, we I don't even think about his age because age has nothing to do with this. Okay. I think that he knows who he is and he knows what he wants. Okay. He wants big fights. I mean, El Spence is the biggest fight he could make. I didn't fight Canelo Alvarez, you know, but... uh it's a big fight, and I think he wants and deserves big fights. I mean, so, you know, I don't think that – I wasn't so shocked about it because I knew that he's a challenger. Right. I'm really happy to be honest. Right. right. Yeah, well, I was going to say, you know, what kind of a a dream come true, for one of a better phrase, is it for you and Errol to land – you know, it's potentially a torch-passing fight. It's a fight against an all-time great. Yeah, I think that – you know, it's funny. This fight – is a dream come true. Not my dream, because I never thought about it, but and not, it may not even be Errol's dream, but if you think about Manny Pacquiao, who started boxing in the Philippines just to get food, like yeah. for to feed his family. I heard the story, whatever. So you think about it, his dream has been coming true for a long time. Mm-hmm. He created and made his reality. So for him to be here still, and for us to get to this level, because I think that us going to all these fights, going to watch him fight Floyd, going to watch Floyd fight all these guys for the last seven, eight fights. I think that it was like a dress rehearsal. It was a, mm. it was preparing us for something that we had no idea that we were going to get, mm. right? And or get to that level because I mean, when you're coming up, you know, you 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 everybody has ideas of grandeur and all this optimism, but it's one thing to be able. Follow through and become the thing that you want to be or you imagine yourself to be. So I think that with us getting here, it really is like, I mean, maybe it was Errol's dream. I just want, for myself, I just wanted to be the best that I could possibly be and help my guys. So, and that, with that being said, I guess that is my dream. Mm-hmm. And to be able to get to this level and to be able to perform this level and for Errol and for Pacquiao, it's going to be a huge fight. I think that. Boxing needs something like this. And this is, like, I believe the biggest fight in the last seven years since Mayweather fought Pacquiao the first time. There hasn't been a fight bigger bigger than that. All the other things are kind of like Mayweather fighting Conor McGregor, which is, you know, animated. But this is, like, one of the bigger, better fights since then. Yeah. So I, the last thing then is I, I want to get your thoughts on it in terms of the in-ring challenge that Manny presents. Um, 
you know, it seems to me like he can't quite fight nonstop for 12 rounds the way he used to. And that's often the case with fighters as they get a little older. But he's definitely still dangerous in bursts. What, what's the number one thing that you're training Errol to be ready for in terms of the challenge that Manny Pacquiao presents? Everything. Everything <laughs> okay. has to be ready. <laughs> you know, and I'm being serious because it's like you have to be able to look at his punch. Everything he does. Because if you don't, you cannot specify one thing because he does a lot of misdirection to where yeah. he'll do something, get something else. So you really cannot get caught up in any of the other things that you think that he ought to be focused on something in particular. And so, and that's everything. So, I mean, it's, um, he, he's still dynamic. He's still phenomenal. He still has the speed. He still has all the things. And, and the thing about it, he still has the tenacity. Mm-hmm. He has the desire. Pacquiao is the kind of guy you got to beat it out of him. Right. Or, you know what I mean? Because if not, he's going to keep coming at you. So I think you just have to be able to be. I think this will be the first fight that, that Pacquiao will face somebody who has the same tenacity level like that to where he's. Because when Pacquiao fight the whole fight and be on people all whole fight, Arrow has that same ability to do the same thing. So I think that that's that's the more intriguing thing about the fight is that both of these guys work on a high level and they throw a lot of punches. So I think that that's going to be the thing that really gets. It's going to be a great fight, like like Arrow and Sean Porter. I think it'll be a great fight. Hey, look, Derek, thanks very much. You've got a busy couple of weeks and months ahead of you. So we really appreciate you taking time out to join us. Um, and best of luck on Saturday with Jamel and uh, with Errol in August. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate you, appreciate you all. And um, you're always, always great, man. So, you know, I like it. Appreciate it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> thanks, thanks so much, much, Derek. Man. Great talking to you. Oh, thanks again to Derek. Um, great interview, as always. Yeah. So uh, let's make some predictions now uh, for this Showtime Championship boxing card. Eric, you currently lead our picks competition by the narrowest of margins, 44 to 43. And it is your turn to pick first. So who do you like in Vidal versus Alim? I can see this going all sorts of different ways. I can see Vidal by KO in the first three rounds. I can see it going deeper and Vidal having to work for a late KO or or even a decision win. And I can see Aleem getting him totally out of his comfort zone and pulling the upset. I guess for a prediction, I'll take the road in the middle uh, that Aleem weathers the early power punches, makes Vidal work, wins some exchanges and some rounds. And then a little later into a good hard fight, Vidal's talent wins out. Um, I don't know what he's made of mentally. Uh, that's a big mm-hmm. question here, but I'll go ahead and assume he won't get discouraged if it doesn't come easy. And if he keeps punching, I think it will come eventually. I'm saying Vidal KO seven in a fight where we get to learn a thing or two about him. Yeah. Look, my first reaction on seeing this was very much along the lines of, of what I think you were saying. And initially I, my reaction was, well, I don't know. Ali might be the B-side here, but I think he might be the favorite. And I sat down and thought about it for a little bit. Um, part of it is because we're more familiar with Aleem, partly because, as we discussed earlier, he's had that much higher caliber of opposition. But even looking at that, there are a couple of things about Aleem that make me nervous. The thing that really kind of stands out to me is that loss to Ronald Ellis, not least because with Ellis, every time we've seen him step up, He's done poorly, by and large. He did. Ex- he was incredibly brave against David Benavidez and deserves all the credit in the world for that. Um, but prior to that, he's been a disappointment. And the one thing you don't want to have on your record is being outworked by Ronald Ellis mm. because he's just often just fallen short at that level. And I feel that that's really a, 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 the bigger of the red flags. You know, yes, he did very well against Matt Korobov, but we now know that Korobov was starting to break down. Um, I don't know. So he may well be a newly focused Alim. The question is whether he'll have enough of Vidal. From what I've seen from Vidal, like yourself, it's difficult to say because we haven't seen him be taken into deep waters. But he does look like he's one of these guys who does have the capacity to just keep throwing. I'm going to 
assume that he's not going to get discouraged, but he's not going to get Aleem out of there earlier. Early Aleem is going to really ask some very tough questions of him, I think. And we are going to see if Vidal has what it takes. But I kind of have a feeling, based on what I've seen of both guys, that if anybody is more likely to be the one still throwing toward the end, it's Vidal. And I kind of see a situation in which this could almost be, you know, a lot of the rounds could be very close. It might not get blown wide open until it suddenly does. Like Vidal's the kind of guy who hits hard enough that he could suddenly land a big right hand out of nowhere. I think that's kind of what's going to happen. I think he'll be up on the cars, but it'll be close. But Vidal will get the stoppage TKO 9. Uh, as for the co-main, Romero versus uh, Jigit. Um, I mentioned a couple of ways it could go, depending on what Romero does. Um, and I think the way that it will go is the way that plays into the hands of Raleigh Romero. I'm going to put my faith in him to be focused here. Um, I see Jiggett starting off reasonably well, marching forward. But yeah, again, like I said, he just looks a little too square to me and his punches just seem unconvincing to me. Um, I just think that's going to play into Romero's hands. I could see Jiggett having the better work rate. I can see him throwing the higher number of punches, but I think the higher caliber of punches, the higher connect percentage will come from Romero. As the fight goes on, I see Raleigh maybe starting to really get to him relatively easy, maybe discouraging him a bit and gradually stepping it up as the rounds pass. For me, the question is how this win comes about. Um, I don't know. I don't, you know, I don't think Romero is as strong as Ivan Baranchik, who just had just relentless pressure on Jigget to break him down and stop him. Uh, I, th- come on, I come on, think- come on, make a decision here. All right. <laughs> I think, you know what? I think despite it all, Jigit is actually going to make it to the end. Romero might have phases of which, uh, during which he looks as if he's going to stop him, but he might not just fully press the advantage, but Jigit is going to lose a wide unanimous decision. Okay. Um, so I see a tougher fight. I, I, as I think you know, I am not sold on Romero. I think he has a lot of flash. I'm, I'm not sure the substance runs that deep. So I'm prepared anytime he fights on Showtime to consider picking against him. Um, sure. Jigit is good. He's solid. He's well-schooled. He has a good chin, at least based on the Baranchik fight, where it was really the eye swelling that led to the stoppage. Um I'm just I'm not sure he has the power to keep Romero honest uh, yeah. that if, if he could hit a little harder, I might be inclined to pick the mild upset here. Um, but I'm going to make the pick that allows me to remain a Romero skeptic without picking against him to kind of cover all bases here. Uh, I'm saying Romero by unanimous decision in a close fight where you might even be able to make a case that he lost it or it was a draw, but right. the judges all give it to him. Um, so as you can tell, I still haven't gotten over that Jackson Mourinho's decision right. entirely. <laughs> um, but we do ultimately have the same pick, unanimous decision. Uh, on to the main event. All along, from the moment this fight was signed, I knew it was an excellent matchup, but I thought it would be a fairly easy pick. But the more I've studied these guys the last week or so, the harder a time I'm having making it. Uh, I'll end the suspense early here. I am picking Charlo. But, uh, boy, we'll we'll talk about this on the money punch. I wouldn't bet him straight up as a minus 250 favorite. I I don't Mm. like that number at all. Castaño is more dangerous than that. I think Castaño's style is probably more all wrong for Jermel than Jermel's style is all wrong for Castaño. And this is going to be a war, and Jermel's going to have to dig deep, I think. Um, I'm thinking lots of close rounds. It'll be about even through nine or ten rounds. And then in those late rounds, maybe around the 10th or 11th, Charlo breaks through with a knockdown. Maybe a, a big looping right that knocks Castaño off balance and down. That separates him on the cards. It goes the distance. Charlo by close unanimous decision. And I wouldn't be shocked if it was majority or split, but I'll go unanimous. And I think it's going to be a hell of a fight. I will go out on a limb and say we see either the fight of the year or the runner up to Estrada Chocolatito 2 for fight of the year on Saturday night. Yeah, this is going to be a tough, tough fight for both men. Um, you know, we know what Castanio is, is going to do. Um, and listening to Derek James, 
he's going to try and take advantage of of Castaño's style. He sort of try to find opportunities in the way that Castaño is going to be throwing a lot of punches. Um, I, I could actually see it being slightly surprisingly cautious start for the first couple of rounds because both men, I think, are going to be highly respectful of each other um, until it does kick into gear and Castaño is going to be the one initially who starts getting it into gear. You know, I, th- I think what's going to be interesting here, I think the challenge for Charlo is on the one hand, he knows he can't afford to be too selective in his punches because of the danger of being outworked. At the same time, he's not going to want to try to, you know, go blow for blow with Castaño because that's not what he does and that's going to leave him more open. So I think what possibly might be a risk here for Charlo is he starts thinking a bit too much in in the ring. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think Castaño is probably more confident and more comfortable in what he has to do. Um, so I wouldn't be at all surprised if Castaño is the one who gets into his groove earlier. Charlo's maybe trying, having to try a couple of things, maybe getting a little frustrated. There might be a little bit of angst in the corner at some point in the first half of the fight. But I do suspect that eventually Charlo's going to start being able to time uh, Castaño through those punches. The key, as you talked about early, Charlo needs to invest to the body if mm-hmm. he possibly can quite early on to try and slow Castaño down a little bit. I think he might just do that. I think he might start slowly, uh, 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 gradually slowing Castaño down. But it's going to be awfully close. I think it's going to be on the line coming into the 12th round. Mm. Um, You know what? I'm going to go with a split decision win, but I am going to go for a split decision win for Jamel Charlo. Okay. All right. Little possibility for some swing in the point standings there. Um, So uh, from one piece of serious and important business, our official predictions, to another piece of very serious and important business, the tweet of the week. Uh, (laughs) It's it's my turn to select it. And this week's choice is a quote RT. Uh, The original tweet came from Morning Combat co-host Luke Thomas. It was a picture of him and Brian Campbell holding their very serious CBS Sports microphones, dressed all sharp for a TV spot related to the UFC card. And Luke did the True Detective Season 4 tweet, which remains a solid internet joke all these years later. (laughs) Um, But the tweet of the week is a quote retweet from... Alex Godinez, a legendary superfan of the old BC and Rafe podcast. Uh, He actually appeared on that podcast a couple of times. Uh, He's at the 80K crew on Twitter. And when your Twitter handle is mocking Carl Frotch for talking about 80,000 fans at at Wembley, you know the guy is solid. (laughs) Um, So he wrote in response to True Detective Season 4, are these the bloated victim corpses or the washed detectives? <laughs> I, I, lo- I love a good ball busting, a good roast. And that's great because it hits them twice. Uh, Luke was obviously saying they're the detectives, but Alex suggests if they are, they're washed oh. detectives. And the other option is that they're bloated victim corpses. Uh, it just cracks me up, especially because we know BC can take a joke. Presumably right. Luke can as well. BC is the first to call himself washed or bloated. So uh, great job, Godinez. Uh, not directly boxing related exactly, but close enough. That's my pick for tweet of the week. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, this is uh, one of the reasons why I stopped actually trying to make jokes on Twitter, because it always ends up badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always going to be somebody to mock you and uh, make a joke right back at you. Uh, yeah, um, I, I never did watch True Detective season three, by the way, uh, despite you recommending it. Uh, I liked not one frame of that show that I saw from the season one finale onward. Um, uh, yes. But that said, you know, if it uh, should happen to jump to Showtime, I'll give it another chance. Yeah, I can't remember how many episodes were in season one, but I remember us talking about the fact that I say it was eight episodes. Like the first yeah, seven episodes were incredible yep, TV. Yep. And and then yeah. Anyway. And now and uh, you know, I, as you might remember, I started season two but gave up on it partway through. Um, you were I had, wise. I I had not yet at that time though seen Friday Night Lights, which I just finished uh, a couple of days ago. Finally uh, watched Friday Night Lights. Now I have a different relationship with Taylor Kitsch. I wonder if that would uh, change anything. No. Nope. No. Okay, never mind. Not going to bother with True Detective Season 3. 3 is still fine. I think Season 3 is still fine, but we'll... Yes, uh, True Detective Season 2 is the Godfather Part 3 of uh, that series so far. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> All right, we are coming off a a relatively slow boxing week in terms of in-ring action. Just a few post-fight conversations worth having briefly. Let's start with the main event of a Friday night zone card in Los Angeles. 
Gilberto Zerdo Ramirez scored three knockdowns with body punches and dispatched Sullivan Barrera in just four rounds. Only the second time Barrera has been stopped. Kieran, how impressed were you with Zerdo? Uh, or was this largely about him catching 39-year-old Barrera at the right time? Uh, and Zerdo called out Dimitri Bivol afterward. Give me your basic handicapping of that one. Who, who would you favor if that fight got signed? Well, you called this quite well last week, I think, in the sense that you did mention that there was a chance that Zerdo would be catching Barrera at just the right time. Um, but I must say, when I was watching it, I wasn't watching it thinking that Barrera looked especially horribly shot or anything. I mean, right. he did look slow. Uh, the thing that caught my eye was uh, his balance and footwork was quite off at times. He'd miss with right hands and miss badly and then be horribly squared up, often with like a foot off the canvas. Um, and sometimes he responded that way when he got hit. Um like with the left hook or something, you would definitely square up like that. Um, that wasn't a good sign. But even so, I, I wasn't thinking, oof, okay, Barrera's done. Um, I, I didn't think it was a case of Ramirez being in with a shell of a fighter at all. But you can only beat the guy in front of you. And even in his losses, Barrera's been competitive. Mm-hmm. This was the first time he was blown out. Um, and what I really liked about Ramirez was the way he stayed compact. He stayed focused. He stayed calm. He picked his shots. He never deviated from his game plan. He knew what he wanted to do. He kept on doing it. Hurt the guy to the body. Kept throwing to the body. Thing with Zerdo is interesting, isn't he? He doesn't look like he's relentless, but he kind of is. He's actually always looking to come forward. He's, he's. I think he always throws more punches than is immediately obvious because I think he's got quite that relaxed style in there, Zerdo, and it almost disguises how busy he is in there. But. He's an interesting fighter, Ramirez. I mean, even when he was having success with top rank, he could sometimes fly under the radar a little bit. But I think this was a good, strong reminder that, hey, look, I'm still here and I'm actually really good. Uh, and I love the idea of a Bivol matchup. I think it's a perfect matchup. I've been waiting for Bivol to really catch fire and elevate himself to that extra level for a while now. And it just hasn't quite happened. But... You know, to be fair, once he made it to world level, he did have that tough sequence of Barrera, Chalemba, Pascal and Smith, which is an incredible four fight sequence, uh, all of which were wins for him. But he did look a little vulnerable the last time out. And honestly, I think he'd have his hands full with Ramirez. I think Ramirez's activity would be tough for him to deal with. And I would probably make Zerto a slight favorite at this point, actually. Yeah, it, it's one of those interesting things where you don't want to go too overboard judging them just based on the last thing you saw right but but it's hard to completely ignore that and certainly right at this moment zerto is looking better than bivol yeah i think so uh in the co-feature lightweights joseph diaz jr and javier fortuna delivered the competitive 12 round bout we anticipated uh despite suffering a cut in round three from a head clash and losing a point in round four for hitting behind the head it was Diaz who prevailed by scores of 117-110, 116-111, and 115-112. Uh, this was Diaz's first fight at 135 pounds after he missed weight for his previous bout at 130. How did he look to you? Uh, there's talk of him slotting in to face Ryan Garcia. What do you think about that? Uh, so as far as this fight uh, against Fortuna, I thought Diaz looked good. Certainly better than in his previous fight against Rakimov. Um but I thought the broadcast team was maybe a little overboard in their praise of how good he looked. Um, I thought it was a closer fight also than they did. I only had Diaz beating Fortuna by a point, um, so seven rounds to five, and then mm. the point deduction, which I didn't think that point deduction was warranted. Right. All that sort of talk is fairly immaterial. Certainly Diaz won. He looked good. Clearly it was time for him to move up after missing 130 by three and a half pounds for the Rakimov fight. And he looked comfortable at 135. And so I envision him playing a similar role in this weight class to what he was at 126 and at 130. Not quite the man. Good enough to give anyone a tough fight. Good enough to beat all but the very best. And so the question for a Ryan Garcia matchup becomes, how good is Ryan Garcia? Is he one of those very best elite type of guys? I think Diaz is a perfect test for him right now. You know, once Garcia is good to go, ready to fight again. Garcia was going to fight Fortuna before pulling out. So if Fortuna is an appropriate opponent that he was going to be favored against, then Diaz is an appropriate opponent whom I would assume Garcia would be favored against. That fight makes sense from both sides. You know, great money and opportunity for Diaz. Good test for Garcia. Uh, and one more quickie to address here. Tim Zhu took care of business against late sub Steve Spark in three rounds on Wednesday in Newcastle, Australia. Not much to analyze in this easy fight, but let's spin it forward. Uh, Derek James 
didn't want to take the bait on future fights <laughs> for Jamel Charlo, but uh, but we can. Is Tim Zhu perhaps the big money fight on the horizon for the Charlo Castaño winner? I seem to recall suggesting Tim Zhu as a left field uh, opponent for Charlo last year. Um, yeah, and you were I, ahead I of the curve. Yeah. Yet again. Yet again. <laughs> um, uh, I think he's even more so presenting himself as a possibility now, the fact mm-hmm. that he just keeps winning. And I think he's shown that he's not just a famous name. I, we don't, I don't know how good of a fighter he is, but he's obviously a good fighter. Um, how much of a big money proposition he is uh, for either of these guys? I think it depends on whether Charlo or Castagna would want to travel to Australia or not. Um, yeah. I, if you could f- go to Australia, fight at a time that works for U.S. audiences – um, a Sunday morning in Australia while still packing an arena there, then you have to figure then you're going to get, you know, the best of both worlds. You're going to get a great gate uh, and also good TV money. And that would do wonders for uh, either man's profile globally and would certainly do wonders for their bank balance. Um, yeah, it's made sense to me for a little while. I think as long as Sue keeps doing what he's doing, the fact that he's showing he's a legitimate fighter as well as boxing royalty, I think it makes it all the, all the more legitimate. I think it's definitely starting to be out there as a as a as a real opportunity to sort of break out of the everybody fighting each other around Robin at 154 yeah. to bringing in that new name and doing the look, I'm doing something different and really elevating themselves. Uh, yeah. I think it makes a lot of sense. Okay, uh, let's turn our attention to the outside the ring news. Uh, and there is no doubt what this week's main event is. It's been a tumultuous few weeks in the heavyweight division as first Deontay Wilder and a judge's ruling derailed the Tyson Fury-Anthony Joshua super fight. And now Fury and COVID have derailed his third fight against Wilder. Reports came out midweek of a COVID outbreak in Fury's training camp. And then Dan Raphael specifically reported that Fury himself tested positive and is symptomatic and so Clearly, this fight scheduled for July 24th in Las Vegas had to be postponed. At least three others in the camp have tested positive, including two friends of our podcast, uh, assistant trainer Andy Lee and another Lee fighter, Joseph Parker. Fury reportedly had one COVID vaccine shot, but never got his second shot. Fury Wilder 3 likely won't happen until October, as there are other major pay-per-views on the calendar in August and September. What a mess. Uh, Kieran, Mm. I went on the diatribe when Teofimo Lopez recently tested positive and had a fight fall out. It's your turn if you want to take it. Uh, Do you have any fingers you want to point here? And how much does this screw up the plans of all the top heavyweights? Um, I might be a slightly less diatribe-y simply because there may be some complicating factors here. Like we know that Teofimo didn't take the vaccine and he Mm. chose not to take the vaccine for not very good reasons. Um... You know, I, I guess if Fury were looking to make excuses, um, you might point to the fact that the UK has been having a very different attitude to the two shot regimen than over here. Like their, their goal was to get the first shot in everybody and then do second shots like eight to 12 weeks later, which is very different from what we've been doing here. But while I don't know when Fury got his first shot, I'm going to go ahead and guess that it wasn't his plan to get it, do a fight camp, pop back to Britain or and get the second shot. Um, or, or get a second shot here. Uh, my guess is that he was probably felt he was one and done. But I might be wrong, but I don't know. But the fact that several others caught it, and I think uh, at least a couple of folks were symptomatic, right, I, I, I believe, um, which suggests one or two things. Either these other people, too, have not been fully vaccinated, mm-hmm. and slash or the Delta variant that is starting to really pick up steam is, is just proving to be remarkably virulent. Um what it does suggest, I think, is that not everyone was, was vaccinated, certainly not fully vaccinated. Um, more importantly, clearly they haven't been very cautious about who's getting access to that camp um, and who people in the camp are having access to. Um, people are far too readily assuming now they don't need to have bubbles, that we can interact with everybody, everything's fine. Look, especially if you're not fully vaccinated, you absolutely need to be continue to be cautious, even more so now. Hate to say it, Cases are going up again. Mm-hmm. The Delta variant is out there. Nevada is is third right now in terms of new cases per capita behind only Arkansas and Missouri. And Clark County, where Las Vegas is, is the epicenter of that in Nevada. This thing is not over. It's not even remotely over. And the reason it's not over, partly, there's two things, partly because of this new variant and partly because people are not getting vaccinated. Yep. Get 
freaking vaccinated. You can still be infected. Absolutely. You can even even more so with the Delta variant. Uh, the vaccines are not quite as effective, it seems, against the Delta variant, but they remain effective at stopping you from becoming seriously ill or going to hospital. Get the goddamn vaccine. Both shots, if it's a two shot one, uh, on whatever timetable your health authorities recommend, but get it done and continue to be cautious. There are places where that have very high vaccination rates and life is going back to normal, fantastic. But the next couple of months are gonna start to be a bit of a rough ride in parts of the country. And instead of like doubling down and saying that people going door to door to encourage you to get vaccinated is some kind of brown shirt plot, just be sensible. Get the damn vaccine for your sake and for everybody else's. Wow, that was you not being too diatribe I don't want to know what you being diatribe <laughs> sounds like. <laughs> but, you know, like I said, the non diatribe is, I don't know what the state of everybody's right. vaccine was. And you have to make allowances for the fact that the Delta variant is, you know, more, more virulent and so on and so forth. Yeah. As for what it means for the heavyweights, which was perhaps the important boxing-related aspect, gosh, this is going to be interesting, though. You know what? It's Bob Aram. The one thing that I heard that, that made me smile a little bit was Bob Aram saying something like, well, at this rate, we might be doing Fury Joshua at Wembley in the spring, not for the second fight between the two, but for the first. And I'm like, right. oh, well, that's that could be all right. Maybe it yep. all works out for the best anyway. But who knows? I mean, I actually do feel a little bad for Deontay Wilder here, actually, by the way, as well. Um, in that. Oof, it's difficult with all the stuff that he's mouthed off and said to, to feel that that sorry for him. But yeah, he had to like go to court to have his contractually um, uh, mandated uh, third fight. And now this happens. Um, I, I don't think it augurs very well for Tyson Fury either, who does not do well when he's not in the ring on a regular basis. Um, I, I don't know if this makes uh, a Wilder Fury upset. Uh, if we assume a Wilder win would be an upset more likely. Joshua's still got to navigate Usyk. Ah, the, I don't know. I just have this odd feeling that either because of something that happens in the ring or something not, that Fury Joshua just may not end up happening anytime soon. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, Eddie Hearn has suggested to Deontay Wilder that Dillian White, uh, who's been waiting for a shot, um, could could step in I, I can't imagine Deontay Wilder taking that um but yeah what can I say it does just add to the to the unfortunate mess at the moment yeah. uh, and I think we have I think to be fair the fighters involved all actually do want to make the fights it's just not happening yeah all right uh several notable items on our news undercard uh in a slower week this one might have been our main event uh, the Nevada State Athletic Commission has decided to no longer punish fighters who test positive for marijuana. Um, speaking of adjusted stances, the British Weekly Boxing News has decided to stop recognizing alphabet belts to refer to those holding them as titleists or title holders, but not champions, and instead to use the uh, TBR rankings uh, and champions. So, note to self, we owe our friend Matt Christie a drink or two when we see him <laughs> next. Good for you, Boxing News. Um, after his assorted failed drug tests that we have documented, Jean Pascal has now been stripped of the alphabet belt he held. Um, and I believe a certain alphabet body has suspended him for ooh, all of six months or something, haven't they? So there you go. Just really cracking down once yes. again. Um, we talked several weeks ago about the he glassed me incident and noticed that alleged glasser David Hay went on to become alleged glassy Derek Chisora's manager. Well, perhaps predictably, they have now parted ways, although amicably. Um, couple of upcoming fight notes. A rematch to perhaps the biggest upset of 2021 so far. Mauricio Lara versus Joss Warrington is reportedly in the works for September. And Jake Paul and Tyron Woodley will hold a press conference Tuesday to announce the date of their Showtime pay-per-view event. With Dan Rayfield's sources, it will be a Sunday night in August. Uh, clearly, our bosses do not want to make our podcasting schedule their top <laughs> priority. Uh, anything to comment on among any of those items? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll pick and choose a few things. Uh, with the Jean Pascal news, my reaction was, wait, he hadn't been stripped already? <laughs> uh, well, that and, wait, he had an alphabet belt? Uh, you see, ignorance is bliss when it comes to keeping track of alphabet titleists, uh, which brings me to the boxing news decision. 
good for them. This is the correct move in terms of respecting their readers and not being part of the problem in boxing. I'm not sure what took so long. It was uh, all the way back in 2001 that we at the ring stopped using the word champion for anyone but an actual world champion. Uh, There's an opportunity here for boxing to not rid itself of the alphabets. They're too ingrained. Um, But at least to devalue them, chip away at their recognition, and plant the seeds for a world where, after an entire generation gets used to not hearing the belts played up, maybe they can be set up to fade away. Uh, It's not going to be an overnight thing, but when we reinstated the ring champions in 2001, it had great support at one network, ESPN, but I think we needed HBO and Showtime also, Mm. and for assorted reasons, they wouldn't get on board. In fairness, The Ring was a media outlet. It was understandable why others in the media wouldn't want to endorse it. And in theory, we had an agenda to sell magazines. Uh, TBR, they, they seem to have dropped the B, by the way. It's not TBRB yeah. anymore. It's a good move. Uh, these are just uh, TBR rankings now. A little easier to say. TBR has no agenda other than trying to do right by boxing fans. Maybe the environment is better now for more in the media getting on board and for most of the major boxing networks to get on board. At the very least, everyone needs to ignore the alphabet belts. That would be a great start. But I'm realistic. I know promoters fueled by short-term thinking mostly like the belts and want to hear the ring announcers mention them at the start of the fight. And so that'll continue no matter what the broadcasters, writers, and podcasters do. But, you know, baby steps. Baby steps are, are still steps. Um, anyway, moving on. The only other thing I want to comment on is the marijuana rule. Clearly, this is the right move. It's not a performance enhancer in combat sports. This is a chance for boxing's powers that be to be less of an embarrassment than the Olympics's powers that be. Uh, but one thing I got to chuckle out of, Boxing Scene reported on this news, and the photo that went with their tweet linking to the story was just a photo of Bob Arum, sunglasses on, hands in his pockets. <laughs> I got to say, you're talking pot and you're talking Nevada. It's Excellent. the right call. Bob Arum Excellent. is the face of where those two topics intersect. <laughs> so well played, boxing scene. Indeed. Um, we have one other item to know, uh, and it is a terribly sad one. Uh, Sebastian Eubank, youngest son of Chris and brother of Chris Jr., uh, had a 2-0 record as a professional, was found dead on a beach in Dubai where he was living just days before his 30th birthday, uh, apparently of drowning. No parent should ever have to bury their child. It has to be surely the absolute worst experience a human being can have. Uh, hearts bleed for Chris Sr. and his family, and we wish them... And Sebastian's family and friends, our deepest condolences. Uh, rest in peace to him. Indeed. All right. It's time for me to give you a top five assignment. And it's an easy one. You're going to like this because it's... <laughs> so it's, you say. So, no, it, you'll see. It's, okay. it's pretty easy, I think. Um, Oscar DeLoya was recently on the Mike Tyson bod- podcast uh, talking about his planned September 11th return against former UFC fighter Vitor Belfort. He said... He wants two of these kinds of fights. And then he said a real one, as he called it, against Floyd Mayweather or Canelo. Now, never mind that Oscar watching this, um, even just two months out from his comeback, doesn't look like he's in shape to fight me, let alone anybody else. (laughs) Um, That's obviously just that's not going to happen. Look, Floyd. Uh, after his underwhelming showing against Logan Paul, seems to know that the time is up for these silly ventures, and Canelo's never going to do that, of course. Um, We are seeing far too many of these embarrassing comebacks being at least mooted. Um, We mentioned, God help us, Riddick Bowe last week. Uh, James Tony, unsurprisingly, is making noises about jumping on this comeback train too. Anyway, it got me to thinking. Uh, These particular efforts at comebacks are largely embarrassing and are, as my mother would always tell me, guaranteed to end in tears. Um, But not all comebacks have been that way. Some have been surprisingly successful. Eric, your task, your five greatest boxing career comebacks. And I was going to establish some limiting criteria here. Um, For example, I was going to suggest that it has to be a comeback after the fighter has announced his or her retirement. But then I thought, no, that actually then doesn't give you the opportunity to include a couple of really good examples, including one very famous one, of course. I also thought, well, maybe there has to be a time limit. The fighter has to have been out of the ring for, say, two years. But 
you know, being out of the ring for two years is not the same in, say, 1941 as in 2021. Right. Um, a lot of fighters, some of the fighters we've got on this card uh, on Saturday have been out of the ring for two uh, for two years. So I'm giving you no restrictions here at all. Okay. You get to define what is a comeback, and a jury of your peers will determine whether you have done so correctly. <laughs> um I don't think this is a super tough assignment, but it could be kind of fun as you think about what once you sort of expand your definition of comeback and thoughts about comeback, I think it can be kind of a fun one. So, um, yeah, you're welcome. That's what I got <laughs> well, it's still anything uh, that encompasses sort of an all of boxing history type thing. Yeah, it's it's never I, I guess I would say not that it's not easy, but there's always some research involved. I got to I got to right. turn over a few stones as I make sure that I'm not uh, missing something obvious here. But uh, that said, it's not. Yeah, I wouldn't say the degree of difficulty is ratcheted up too high either. This is this does sound like a fun one. Uh, three names like sprung right to mind while you right. were while you were talking there. So I'm sure there will be a bunch that come to mind quickly and then I'll do some more research and I shall report back next week with the five greatest boxing career comebacks criteria and stipulations to be determined by me uh, as to exactly. exactly what a comeback entails exactly there you go all right that will do it for this week's episode of showtime boxing with raskin and Mulvaney. thanks again to derek james for joining us and being as great a guest as always uh be sure to check out his fighter jamel charlo in all access jamel charlo versus castanio available on demand and on the showtime sports youtube channel and after that check out the fight itself charlo versus castanio at 9 p.m eastern saturday on showtime uh but we will be back before then on friday morning to analyze the betting on that fight in a special money punch edition of the podcast until then thank you for listening be safe be kind be well and get the goddamn vaccine